Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, these brothers have come forward. They're going to make their way back. And if you'll get their attention as they do, they'll get you one of those Bibles marked at Matthew 5. So you can follow along. The most significant influence on contemporary American church life began in 1974. Forty years ago, and it began with a church youth group. The leaders of that group, a group called Sun City, Sun, S-O-N, began what would la- they would later call a new way of doing church, using contemporary music, dramatic skits, and multimedia. And it resulted in an explosion in numbers in that youth group from 25 to 1,200 in just a few years. As a result of the explosive growth, those youth leaders formed a new church in South Barrington, Illinois in 1979, and Willow Creek Community Church, led by Bill Hybels, became the model for literally thousands of churches in America. New churches that were started, or in many, many cases, existing churches that were transformed into what Willow Creek called a seeker-sensitive church. Now, the mantra for advocates of the seeker model is change without compromise. Now, if what is meant by compromise is a narrow definition in which the gospel itself is directly changed or no longer preached at all, then it's true. Many of those churches, if not all of those churches, have not necessarily compromised. But if you consider what the Bible teaches about things like the nature of the church, or the nature of worship in and by the church, and who worship is designed for, believers or unbelievers, then indeed this movement has radically changed the nature of both the church and its worship. But if numbers are your measure, then there's absolutely no denying that the Willow Creek model has been wildly successful. But if making disciples happens to be your measure, and some of you may recall that that was what Jesus commissioned us to do, not gather crowds, but Jesus said in his final instructions to his first followers, go and make disciples of all nations. And so if making disciples is your measure, then perhaps not so much. In fact, in 2006... After over 30 years of the seeker model and having literally transformed the landscape of American evangelical Christianity during that time, Willow Creek, to their credit, became concerned about their lack of disciple-making. They did a survey of the thousands who attend on the weekends, and they found that the people who attended, by and large, were deficient in their understanding of even basic Christian truths. In turn, then, they developed a strategy to be more intentional in teaching people the Bible. But to my knowledge, there has as yet been no data published as to whether this effort has resulted in actually accomplishing what Jesus commissioned us to do. Now think about this, friends. You decide that the way church has been done needs to be radically changed, and you audaciously set out to remake church. 
You're successful beyond your wildest imagination. Churches all over the country are emulating your model, attracting large crowds of people. And yet, 30 years after this experiment, you say, in effect, oops. And you see, for something as important as the church of Jesus Christ, you don't get a do-over. You don't get an opportunity to say, oops, we missed that one about making disciples. That would have been, by the way, in your Bible, in red letters. Jesus said that. It seems that it would have been hard to miss. With all the people coming and all the enthusiasm and all of the seminars and all of the conferences we've done to tell people how to do church better, we're not making disciples. And you don't get a mulligan on that. You can't put the genie back in the lamp. The damage is done and the damage is continuing. We're surrounded in our area by churches influenced by the seeker model. The spawn of Willow Creek not only consists of those directly in what is called the Willow Creek Association, but in many other organizational offshoots. Numerous organizations have arisen in the last 30 years with somewhat different emphases than Willow, but with one foundational and crucial thing they all have in common. Hear this. The idea is for the church to be considered relevant by guess who? The world. The idea is for the church to find a way to somehow be considered relevant to the world. Somehow, someway, present yourself in a manner that the culture will take notice, discover that you are much cooler than we thought, and give you a look. Just last week, we were treated to yet another train wreck in this new direction of the popular church. Some of you may know the name Mark Driscoll. In some circles, Driscoll has been all the rage for at least 10 years. But over the past year and a half, a steady stream of scandal has resulted in the church planting group that he himself started, called Acts 29, dismissing him from its membership, along with the huge church that he has in Seattle, the Mars Hill Church. Driscoll was and is cool to a large segment of evangelicals. And his persona is completely different from that of Hybels. Driscoll represents what John MacArthur called grunge Christianity. But what they both have in common is an intentional attraction to the world. And that attraction is, say they, in discovering what the culture is doing and getting with it. Now you may ask, rightly, if we don't get with the world's program, then how are we ever going to reach people? Can we influence individuals in our larger community if we do not become the church of what's happening now? Some of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson. In our passage today from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes very clear that Christians can and will influence their world. Notice verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus makes clear 
that absolutely Christians can and must influence their world. But it's crucial to note that this influence exerted by Christians is not due to making ourselves like the world. We are not called to attract the world by being relevant according to the world's standards. We are called by Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount to attract the world by our righteousness. And I say this because these verses, verses 13 through 16, follow the section of Jesus' sermon called the Beatitudes. Eight blessings, Beatitudes, that he pronounced on those who follow him. The first seven of those eight focus on what kind of people his followers are. The Christian's attitude is that of one who is poor in spirit, verse 3. And as a result of being poor in spirit, understanding that we have nothing to measure up to the status of a holy God, verse 4, he then mourns over his sin. And that creates in verse 5 a humility, a meekness toward others. And because he accurately sees himself as he is, with deficiency in his own spiritual character, verse 5, he hungers, or verse 6, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And then he demonstrates that righteousness through verse 7, his mercy, and then his purity, and then his peacemaking. And the result of all of that is twofold. An eighth and final beatitude and blessing is pronounced on those who experience persecution as a result of these righteous lives. Blessed are you, as we saw last week, when men persecute you. Verses 10 through 12 tell us the world will sometimes hate and persecute those who so display this kind of Christ-like character. And then in verse 16, though, it will sometimes result in worldlings being changed so that they praise God for His goodness. And so this righteous life that we are all called to has an effect, no doubt about it. It may result in persecution. It may result, we pray to God, in the salvation of some who witness those lives and hear our message. But Jesus is clear. Our calling is not to impress the world by being changed into its likeness, but for us to be changed into Jesus' likeness and for the world to take notice of that. Do you all get that? Our objective is not to find out how we can be like the world. Get this. It is not for us to find out how we can be like the world. It is for the world to want to be like us because we're like Jesus. We're going to see that from verses 13 through 16. We need to ask God to help us as always. Let's bow together. Father, we come to you needy as in every moment of every day. We look at the blessed words of the Lord Jesus, of what we are if we are his, and we are becoming like him. Thank you for these words, and help us to understand them, and help us to apply them. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, verse 13. Let's read the entire passage. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now consider, friends, that Jesus is making these incredible statements to a handful of Palestinian peasants. And he makes the scope of their influence. Now just think about it. He says to you guys, this ragtag bunch, you're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And the scope of that influence is the earth and it's the world. You know one of the things that that shows us? Is that numbers do not inhibit God. Some have said, rightly, you and God are always a majority. And you look at the earth and you look at the world and you go, yikes, we're outnumbered. And you look at those guys and it's this little bunch that Jesus is talking to. They're outnumbered. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the entire earth. You're the light of the world. This teaches us numbers do not inhibit God. And prominence does not matter to God. God does not care in the least that we are regarded well by the world. God is concerned about us being well regarded by Him. To show the influence that Christians are called to have in the world, Jesus uses two things that are needful in life to show that in this passage, salt and light. Now, the need for light is obvious, but we may not see the need for salt, given the culture we live in. But we need to remember that in Jesus' day, they did not have the convenience of preservatives or a refrigerator. Salt was extremely valuable because their meat could be cured. When salt was rubbed into the meat, it was preserved. So John Stott has said this, The basic truth which lies behind these metaphors and is common to them both, is that the church and the world are distinct communities. On the one hand, there is the earth. On the other, there's you, who are the earth's salt. On the one hand, there is the world. On the other, there is you, who are the world's light. True, he says, the two communities, they and you, are related to each other, but their relatedness depends on their distinctness. The metaphors tell us something about both communities. The world is evidently a dark place with little or no light of its own since an external source of light is needed to illumine it. True, it's always talking about its enlightenment, but much of its boasted light is in reality darkness. And the world also manifests a constant tendency to deteriorate. The notion is not that the world is tasteless and Christians can make it less insipid. The thought of making the world palatable to God is quite impossible but that it's, the world is putrefying. It cannot stop itself from going bad. Only salt introduced from outside can do this. The church, on the other hand, is set in the world with a double role. As salt to arrest, or at least to hinder its putrefication, the process of social decay that it's going through, and it has the role of light to dispel the darkness. When we look at those two metaphors more closely, we see that they're deliberately phrased in order to be parallel to each other. In each of them, Jesus makes an affirmation. You're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But then he adds a condition on which that affirmation that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world depends. Salt has to retain its saltiness. Light must be allowed to shine. 
Salt is good for nothing if its saltiness is lost. Light is good for nothing if it's concealed. We want to see that together with the outline that I've inserted, that I've prepared and has been inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take a look at it, please. We want to see a couple of main points from this passage regarding Christians' influence. The first is this. Christians have a positive influence. Christians have a positive influence. You are the salt of the earth. Pliny, a Roman statesman in the first century, said nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. And in this positive influence that Christians have as the result of being the salt of the earth, I say in your outline, first, we have a preserving effect. So Christians who live lives as Jesus described in the blessings, the Beatitudes, they have indeed a positive effect as the salt of the earth. And that positive effect includes being a preserving agent. This means that when each community the world and the church acts as itself and is true to itself. The world will decay like rotten fish or meat while the church can hinder that decay. In God's common grace, he's provided other restraining influences in the world that keep the world from descending into anarchy and chaos. Thanks be to God that he has given us government. You say, you're thankful for the government? Uh, listen, friends. God says, I gave you government, Romans chapter 13. I gave you government to restrain evil in the world. And if it is not for that common grace restraint that I have provided for you, the world would be impossible to live in. So yes, even a bad government is better than no government. God has provided and established the home and marriage as a bulwark against the decay of society. But as we all know in the last few years, our culture is hell-bent on removing those restraints, and we are going to see the effects of that in our culture in the years to come if there is not a revival in our land. And these, government that God has given, the home and marriage that God has given, they exert a wholesome influence in society. But God intends that the most powerful of all the restraints within sinful society is to be his own redeemed, regenerate, and righteous people. One commentator said, Jesus' disciples are to be a moral disinfectant in a world, a world in which moral standards are low, constantly changing, or even non-existent. Christians have a positive influence in the world, by having a preserving effect on the world. But then I say in your outline as well, we're to have a persevering effectiveness. So there is the preserving effect, but then we're to persevere. We're to have a persevering effectiveness. Now, why do I say that? Because in verse 13, in order for salt to remain effective, it must maintain its essential properties. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So the salt losing its saltiness, Jesus says. And he says it as if that's, that's possible. Now, technically speaking, strictly speaking, Sodium chloride is a stable compound, so salt can't lose its saltiness. 
but it can become contaminated, contaminated by mixture with impurities. The salt in Jesus' day came from deposits from the Dead Sea, sometimes called the Salt Sea. These deposits were impure because there were other compounds mixed in. Salt was the most soluble and could easily be dissolved and leached away, leaving a white powdery substance that looked like salt but really wasn't. It had no sodium chloride. It was just residue, road dust as it were, that would just be trampled. Now enough of the chemistry lesson. The point is that Christians must not lose their distinctive purity. We are to live pure, disinfecting lives in the world. In our day, the church has lowered its standards such that it's sometimes difficult to tell the church from the world. And Jesus says when that happens, we become useless, road dust. Aside, friends, from things like we attend church, and I'm speaking to us here, let's think about this as it applies to us. Aside from attending church, generally being honest in our dealings, and having about us some of the trappings of Christianity, ask yourself, what do folks see in me that's distinctively Christian? Is it a life based on a thoroughly Christian value system? A life that seeks to know God's truth and bring our lives in conformity to that truth? When Jesus says in verse 13 that if the salt loses its saltiness, it uses the Greek word maranthe, from which we get our English word moron. It's used two other times in the New Testament, and it means in both of those other occasions to become foolish. He's saying literally when salt becomes foolish, it's good for nothing. What Jesus is saying is when salt ceases to be what it was intended to be, it's foolish. When Christians lose their distinctive purity, then we've made fools of ourselves. Because we've ceased to be what God intended for us. In previous generations, it was common for preachers and Christians in general to talk about avoiding worldly amusements and entertainment. But today, we think that's all a quaint fossil of days gone by. Those dear folks meant well, but they didn't know, after all, we live in the world, and so they developed these foolish standards of morality. Can you believe it? It's all pretty foolish, isn't it? But you know, friends, God does not label the person who seeks to be pure as foolish. God says the one who dabbles in the world and loses his distinctiveness is the one who is foolish. God does not use the tools of the world to reach the world. Indeed, we are to live in the world, but we are not to be of the world in our choices including our choices of things like entertainment and amusement. God does not use those tools to reach the world. Rather, he uses people who are different, people who are distinctive. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in your Bible, much is made of the fact that God chose the foolish things, foolish to this world, to confound the wise in the world's eyes. And so it is to be with Christians. On one occasion... Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, have salt 
in yourselves. And I quote John Stott again. Christian saltiness is Christian character as depicted in the Beatitudes. Committed Christian discipleship exemplified in both deed and word. For effectiveness, the Christian must retain his Christ-likeness, as salt has to retain its saltiness. If Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones emphasizes this. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It's then that the world is made to listen to our message, though it may hate it at first. Otherwise, if we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt, thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. That is a warning to the contemporary church and the 21st century Christian in America. Christians indeed have a positive influence, says Jesus. But it's when we are the salt of the earth and we are distinct and we have that preserving effect. But secondly in your outline, Christians have a positive influence, but they also have an illuminating influence. A positive influence, and now in verse 14, an illuminating influence. Illumine means to light up. And Jesus says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now when Christians, acting as Christians, are supposed to act and believe and behave, our light, they are simply reflecting Christ's character and the light of his character. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so we follow him, and we have the light of life, and then we reflect that light in the way we live. And so the great Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 2, You, Philippian Christians, shine in a warped and crooked generation. You shine like stars in the sky. Now, in verses 14 and 16, Jesus says, You're the light of the world. This light is to intentionally shine, as we're going to see in a bit. But then as a result of that, verse 16, what people see, verse 16, is your good works. And so if you put that together, the light is shown in our good works. Works that are in keeping with the character of Christ that we have received when we came to him. This light is our good works. Good works in the Bible is a general expression to cover everything a Christian says and does because he is a Christian. Every outward and visible result of his Christian faith. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. That light is going to show up then in these good works. And light in Scripture is a common symbol of truth. So a Christian shining in these good works includes his or her spoken testimony of truth. And so the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, predicted that the Messiah who we now know to be Jesus 2,000 years ago, that he would be what the first part of your Bible calls a light to the nations. And then when Jesus was born, an old man who knew those predictions held Jesus. And he beheld this one who had been promised hundreds of years before and says this in Luke chapter 2. 
This child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. But this prediction about Jesus is said in the Bible to have been fulfilled not only in Christ himself, who is the light of the world, but also by Christians who bear witness to Christ and the truth about Christ. And we see that in the fifth book of your New Testament. It's called the book of Acts because it's the acts of Jesus' first followers, the things they did in light of what he had commanded and taught them and modeled before them. The Bible says in Acts chapter 26, the prophets predicted the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. But then the book of Acts also says, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you my followers, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see this? Jesus is the one who is this light. Jesus is the one who brings us salvation. But he is mediating that through the light that he has given to his followers and the message that they proclaim to the ends of the earth. Evangelism, then, must be counted as one of those good works by which our light shines and our Father is glorified. But those good works also include works of love as well as works of faith. They express not only our loyalty to God, that is, works of faith, but our care for our fellow humanity in addition to loyalty to God. These are works of love, practical, visible deeds of compassion. And friends, it's when people see these that they'll glorify God. For they demonstrate the good news of his love which we proclaim in the gospel message. Without those accompanying works, our gospel loses its credibility and our God loses his honor, this praise, this glory that he desires and deserves. And so Christians have an illuminating influence. And I say in your outline, it's through these righteous lives that we live, these good works that issue forth, from the light that Christ has given us. And I say our righteousness is to be three things. The first is, it's to be obvious. Our righteousness, this light of our lives, is to be obvious. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. When the scriptures speak of the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was located, it's the place where God met with his people. When the scriptures speak of that place, of Jerusalem, they speak of going up to Jerusalem, no matter where the person who's going is located, even if they're north of Jerusalem. We talk about going up north. But even if they're north of Jerusalem, they're still going up to Jerusalem. Now, why is that? It's because Jerusalem is an elevated city, a city on a hill. I've not had occasion to visit the Holy Land, but those who have describe the thrill of the bus coming around a bend in the road and seeing up on a hill Jerusalem with white marble glistening in the sun. And pilgrims in the first part of your Bible would speak of this, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and seeing it up on a hill. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, His holy mountain. It's beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. 
And if it's beautiful in the day, how much more in the night with thousands of lights to thrill a weary pilgrim, a weary traveler. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So this light is intended to be conspicuous. It's intended to be obvious. It's intended to be easily seen. But secondly in your outline, our righteousness is to be purposeful. It's to be obvious, but it's to be purposeful. Verse 15, Jesus says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, the lamp that they used in those days was a clay pottery bowl that they'd fill, fill up with a little oil, and they would put a floating wick in it, and then they would light it. And when it was lit, there was usually a lamp stand, often on a shelf on a wall, and it was set up high, and they'd set the lamp on the stand. And Jesus says the light is not to be hidden. It's intended to illuminate the room so it must not be obstructed. And Jesus adds, people don't put it under a bowl. You don't light a lamp, set it down, and put a bushel basket over it. You don't hide a lamp. It would be absurd to do so because that violates the very purpose for which you have the lamp. Now, friends, this light then, that is our righteous lives and the word of the gospel that we are to preach to the world, is to be obvious. It is not to be obstructed in order for it to achieve its purpose. Do you see applications of that for us? It means that we have to have the courage to speak truth. We have to have the courage to live truth in a world that is going increasingly contrary to God's standards. Everything around us tells us conform. Be like the world. And Jesus says, if you do that, the light that you're intended to be will not achieve its purpose. Quite to the contrary. That the church would ever find out what the world wants and then say, we'll give it to you. How absurd. The church has an illuminating influence through righteousness that is obvious, that's purposeful. And then I say lastly, our light, our righteousness, is to be reflective. Reflective. And what I mean by that is God's ultimate design for us to have the light of Christ in our lives, living as Jesus lived, speaking as Jesus spoke, thinking as Jesus thinks, God's ultimate reason for that is for that to reflect back to Him, to bring glory to Him. So why is this light in the world that is Christians to be obvious and to not be concealed? Jesus says in verse 16, here's why. That they may see your good deeds and do this, glorify your Father in heaven. And when it says good deeds there, there are two words in the New Testament for good. This one means beautiful and attractive. Our lives, Jesus is saying, are to have an alluring quality. And as men are drawn to our Lord through our words and our deeds, they bring glory to God. Just outside Jerusalem, a few miles outside of Jerusalem, toward the Dead Sea, there was a community on the shore at a place called Qumran. This community withdrew from society. 
and emphasized their teaching that there would be one who would come who would be called the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. Their teachings emphasized light. And yet the irony is, here they are on the banks of the Dead Sea, sometimes called the Salt Sea. And they're talking about light and the coming of the sun, but they're having no impact on society. They were neither salt nor light. And when Jesus spoke of those whose lives lose their effect and their message is thereby obscured, he may well have been thinking of them as an illustration. I can see Jesus sitting there telling this and taking a glance in that direction saying, we all know that there are people who are hiding their light. But why is it? If Christians really live out the Beatitudes that Jesus has given us, and as a result are pursuing being salt and light in the earth and in the world, why would worldlings praise God as a result of that? And why would God command that we pursue righteousness as an evangelistic technique? Since the Bible tells us that people who do not belong to Christ are, quote, dead in trespasses and sins. Hear this. It's because righteousness always works. Righteousness always works. Now let me explain. doesn't mean everybody comes to Jesus. Not even close. Some come to Jesus. Praise be to God. But even when they don't come to Jesus, righteousness always works. Here's why. Because in God's definition, what works is what brings glory to me. And the righteous lives of his people always bring glory to him. And sometimes he adds to that glory one coming out of darkness and into light. Thanks be to God. But whether they do or whether they do not, righteousness always works for the glory of God. Now, I'm going to conclude with a quote from an article recently in Christianity Today magazine. And this article was written by a woman who headed up a Christian organization on the campus of Vanderbilt University. And as I read, I want you to see how foolish this woman was to believe that if she could be like the world, she would be accepted by the world, ultimately. Here's what she says. I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. Ooh, shudder to think. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, and cultural engagement. We avoid spiritual cliches and buzzwords. And then she says, we value authenticity. If there is ever a buzzword in our day, it's authentic and authenticity. But that aside, we avoid cliches and buzzwords, she says. We're about study, racial reconciliation, and social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban progressive context, but despite some clear differences, differences she doesn't enumerate, I held a lot in common with my unbelieving friends. We could disagree about, now listen to all the things we could disagree about, truth, spirituality, and morality, 
and remain on the best of terms. The failures of the church often made me more uncomfortable than those in the broader culture. So I'm going to read on, but let me summarize so far. Though I disagree with my unbelieving friends on stuff like, say, truth and spirituality and morality, in some ways I like them more than I do the people at church. Then she says, two years ago, the student organization I worked for at Vanderbilt University got kicked off campus for being the wrong kind of Christians. In May 2011, Vanderbilt's director of religious life told me that the group I'd helped lead for two years, Graduate Christian Fellowship, a chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, was on probation. We had to drop the requirement that student leaders affirm our doctrinal and purpose statement or we would lose our status as a registered student organization. But I thought, if we could show that we weren't homophobic culture warriors, but friendly, thoughtful evangelicals committed to a diverse, flourishing campus, then the administration and religious groups could find common ground. I thought a winsome faith could win Christians a place at Vanderbilt's table. And then she says, I was wrong. Go figure. Go figure that the world ultimately doesn't like Christ. That the world ultimately doesn't like Christians. Go figure. But Jesus says, you be light. You be salt. And that salt and that light have nothing to do with accommodating a worldly culture. They have everything to do with you being like me. And there will be times if you're like me, they'll persecute you like they did me. But God in His grace at times will call people out of the world and to Himself and use those very lives to create the desire on the part of some to join the family of God. And in either case, He'll receive the praise for the Christ-like lives lived by his people and the mouths that are turned from cursing to praising that have come through the conversion of one one to Christ. I say in your take-home truth, Christians are to live lives of righteousness that influences others and guides them to the truth. Dear friends, that's the kind of church we want to be. I will just say, and we'll be done, for my part, I don't care how many churches we're surrounded by that capitulate to the culture and capitulate to the world. By God's grace, we are going to seek to be light and salt by being like Jesus. And as Jesus sees fit to bring people to himself through that process, we and they will praise him. And we will praise him for whatever he chooses to do as a result of the obedience of his people to his word. Now, we're going to be dismissed in just a moment, but before we do, I want to do one final thing, and that is to remind some of you and inform others who may not know, but Brother Carl Anthony is with us for his last Sunday today for a period of time. Let me quickly tell the story, and then I'm going to have Carl come forward, and we're going to pray for him. But Carl is, got, has gotten, uh, a month ago, a new job that's going to take him on the road for most of the rest of this year. He's leaving Tuesday in two days. 
And there's an excellent story that goes with Carl getting this job and being able to keep his home base here and his church here where he has been baptized in March and growing in the Lord. And that story is that a little over a month ago, Carl was resigned to having to move back to his home in Sioux Falls, uh, North Dakota. Sioux Falls is in North Dakota, right? It's in South Dakota. When I said it, it didn't sound right. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And he had actually uh, called a former employer there because he hadn't gotten a job here, and uh, they offered him a job very quickly, and he was set to leave. That night, he was troubled about having to leave, leave the friends he has made here, and uh, troubled for other reasons. And, uh, but he was map-quested his route to go from his home to uh, here to uh, back to Sioux Falls. And as he says, tells a story, as the blue line you know, on MapQuest shows you the journey, right at the beginning, lo and behold, what shows up there is Community Bible Church. And it made him all the more sad because I'm going to be leaving my, my church. And uh, he tells a story that exactly 15 hours to the minute, 15 hours after he did that map quest, he got a call from actually a brother in our church whose company was looking for someone. And all of this is unbeknownst to him. And Carl has offered us this job, a job that will keep him based here. But now, after a month of training for the next four months, the remainder of the year, he's going to be on the road. So we may see him a few more Sundays between now and the end of the year as he's back in town, but for the most part, he's going to be on the road. So the good news is he's got this job, still based here, still going to be in contact with us, and we assume he won't be on the road all the time, and going into next year, we'll be able to spend more time with us. But these next four months are going to be a challenge. Carl's new in the Lord. There are going to be temptations on the road. He's not going to have the accountability that he has had here to grow in the Lord that he's had with many brothers and sisters in our church. And he's wise enough to know that. And he desires your prayers. And I committed that our church would pray for him. So, Carl, if you'll come forward, I'd like to spend a moment praying for you. And then committing our church's prayers for you over these next several months, okay? So let's pray together, all right? Let's pray for our brother. Our Father, we thank you for what the life of Carl represents about your love and your grace. Lord, he represents one who has been, as it were, snatched from the fire. Because he was one who was going in a completely opposite direction than the one you have designed for your creatures. And he was not only going in an opposite direction in a benign way, was actually hostile and opposed to you and seeking to influence others likewise. You, in your great mercy and your grace, reached down and touched his heart and drew him to the beauty of the gospel and the Savior of that gospel. We thank you, Lord, then, for your mercy represented in Carl. We thank you for your love represented in Carl's life as you have brought people to speak truth to him, to come around him and encourage him, and to build him up, to help him come to this place and to learn your, your truth. We thank you, Lord, for your love shown and your provision for him in granting him this job at just the right time. And yet, Lord, we know that we are frail. We know that we are weak. And Carl knows his own vulnerabilities. And so, Lord, he will need your protection. We ask you to protect him physically as he's traveling many places over many hours. We ask you most of all to protect him spiritually. Keep him from temptation. 
And we pray, Lord, that he will flourish in this job and that we will see him several times between now and the end of the year and that he will be back here to grow in you as this project uh, concludes. So, Lord, we thank you for what you've done and we thank you for what you're going to do and we go forward with full trust, not in ourselves, but in you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.